everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Conker's Bad Fur Day, a three-dimensional platform title developed and published by Rare for the Nintendo 64 console back in 2001. We're going to look at that title in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 56. I'm excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And we have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best place to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of great fun out there, including the Weekend Gaming Challenge. This past weekend was our first weekend of season one of our challenges. So we had a lot of activity out there. We also had quite a bit of activity for the October monthly challenges, which, like I mentioned before, are all community driven. So without further ado, here is the current leaderboard. ISO is in the lead with 87 points. He got 27 points for the weekend challenge. He finished every single monthly challenge for October already. So he is sitting in first place with 87 points. Boogie Anu has 58 points. He had six points over the weekend and another 52 points for the monthly challenge. Then we had Rich Sanewald with 40 points. He had 10 points over the weekend. He's completed 30 points of the monthly challenge. I am the Dizzle coming up in fourth place with 19 points. He had four points over the weekend along with 15 monthly points. I have 15 points related to the monthly challenge because it was a community challenge, so I figured I might as well play along with that. So I am currently in fifth place. And left-handed guitarist had three points over the weekend. He rounds out the leaderboard in sixth place. If you guys want to get involved and engaged in the weekend gaming challenge with prizes at the end of the season, Discord is where it's at. Looking forward to seeing who else might decide to join. I also want to mention that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today content, that is the place to go to get it. We release a new podcast exclusive to Patreon every other week. We have exclusive blog posts. There's special roles and channels out on Discord. It's a lot of fun. I do encourage everybody, if you feel so inclined, to go join us over there. That is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. These are the members of our Patreon that are contributing at the Pantheon level. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, and David Morton. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show. Whether you contribute monetarily or you just listen on a regular basis, I truly do appreciate the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we go into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we give any star rankings or we rate games on a scale of 1 to 10, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? the narrative and or story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. 
And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should drop everything you're doing and go out and play that game today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives or you have particularly fond memories about the game itself. Absolutely go out and play it. I highly recommend everybody to play these games as well. They're not quite Pantheon level, but they are still really good experiences, and I highly encourage you to play them today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our mediocre mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broader population. They may have aged a little bit, may have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these games to the broader population. They're just something that takes them down a little bit. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day, and that is Conker's Bad Fur Day. Conker's Bad Fur Day is a three-dimensional platform title developed and published by Rare for the Nintendo 64 console back in 2001. Before we can talk about Conker, we've got to talk about the Nintendo 64. And I've got to say, I am super excited to have the opportunity to talk about Nintendo's last true classic cartridge-based system before they decided to join the rest of the industry in using disc-based storage albeit still in a proprietary mini-disc-like format, but whatever, that's Nintendo. And no discussion about the Nintendo 64 can be complete without looking at a couple of the platformers that released over its lifespan, as this was the time, and Nintendo 64 was the console, that really saw a shift from traditional two-dimensional sprite-based platforming titles into fully realized three-dimensional worlds with all of the challenges and uniqueness those titles would come with. But first let's take a look at the Nintendo 64 itself. And to do that, we need to look at the state of the video game industry in the early 90s. As we have talked about in prior episodes, Nintendo had been the market leader in the video game console market ever since they unveiled their 8-bit Famicom and Nintendo Entertainment System consoles back in the mid-80s. Recall that the video game industry had crashed in 1983, driven primarily by a significant number of poor quality titles that served to erode consumers' confidence in video game developers. There was no guarantee that when you went to a video game store to purchase a title, that you would actually be getting something worthwhile to play. Even big blockbuster releases, like the licensed movie tie-in E.T. for the Atari 2600, 
weren't immune to poor quality. And as a result, video game sales plummeted, with many analysts predicting that video games were a passing fad whose time had finally come. Nintendo basically turned to those analysts and said, hold my beer, and proceeded to reinvent and reinvigorate the entire video game industry, with a focus on quality titles and first-party developed franchises that would bring consumers back to gaming and, in the process, establish Nintendo as the market leader in home video game console sales. And by leader... I mean, nobody else even came close, as Nintendo owned over 90% of all home console sales. There were competitors, but they were facing an uphill battle. Nintendo was the king of the mountain. Through a series of shrewd marketing and unique game experiences, other companies like Sega would begin to penetrate Nintendo's armor in the early 90s, and Nintendo knew it couldn't take that assault lying down. So, they began to develop an add-on for their current console, the Super Nintendo, that would allow the system to use CD-ROM technology, which was quickly expanding across the market as an appealing alternative to the traditional cartridge-based consoles of the decade. CD-ROMs offered more storage, the potential for higher quality and longer gaming experiences, and, perhaps most importantly for game developers, cost a fraction of what comparable memory chip-based cartridges could be manufactured for. Nintendo was ready to respond to the shifting industry trends, and they believed their add-on was going to allow them to maintain their market lead. To bring this new add-on to market, they decided to partner with electronics manufacturer Sony, who was looking for a way to enter the video game industry themselves. Unfortunately for Sony, at least at the time, Nintendo decided at the last minute to partner with one of Sony's rivals, Philips Electronics, who was also looking for partners as they expanded into the home console market with their Philips Compact Disc Interactive, or CDI, system. Under the terms of the agreement, Philips would manufacture Nintendo's add-on disc peripheral, while Nintendo would allow Philips to use some of Nintendo's most prized mascots, specifically Zelda, Link, and Mario, in titles to be developed exclusively for the CDI. Many of you probably know how this eventually played out, but just as a refresher, Nintendo ended up not developing a CD-based add-on, Philips succeeded in releasing several poorly received Nintendo character titles for their fledgling system, and Sony eventually ended up entering the video game market as a standalone competitor with its PlayStation system, effectively changing the competitive landscape of the video game industry forever. Which is to say, Nintendo began to face much stiffer competition in the market as the 90s played on. Despite its failure to develop a CD add-on for their Super Nintendo system, they were not about to let others take their market share without a fight. And here, a new player enters our story, that being the computer graphics company Silicon Graphics. If you were alive in the 90s, I'd venture a guess that you've likely heard of Silicon Graphics and their much-touted workstations, as they were pretty much the leading manufacturers of high-powered computers for advanced graphics editing and special effects. If you watched any of the big-budget blockbusters of the time, like Terminator 2 or Jurassic Park, you saw Silicon Graphics machines at work. The interesting thing is, beyond Silicon Graphics' film special effects aspirations, they also wanted to expand their technology into the home video game console market, and in 1993, they began looking for a partner to take their technology to the masses. Their first stop wasn't Nintendo, however, it was actually rival company Sega. Sega was in the midst of massive growth around this time, and had finally begun to truly compete with Nintendo, which would eventually lead them to become the leader in the home console market. 
because of their newfound growth, there were plenty of opportunities available to them, and Silicon Graphics approached then-Sega of America CEO Tom Kalinske with a proposition. They wanted to work together to take the advanced graphics processing power of Silicon Graphics workstations into Sega's next console. Kalinske was incredibly impressed, though based on the Sega corporate structure of the time, Sega of Japan had to approve any new hardware for future consoles. Kalinske, Silicon Graphics, and Sega of Japan met several times, but ultimately, Sega decided that they did not want to pursue a partnership with Silicon Graphics, instead doubling down on their own internally developed systems and capabilities. As many know, this corporate bureaucracy and Sega of Japan's stranglehold over innovation is what would eventually result in Sega leaving the home console business entirely. But luckily for Silicon Graphics, another potential partner was waiting in the wings. That partner was, of course, Nintendo. Nintendo was more than happy to begin a partnership with Silicon Graphics, as they were beginning to think about their next console and how they could respond to all of the industry pressure they were facing in the midst of increasing competition and new entrants in the marketplace. So, then-Nintendo CEO Hiroshi Yamauchi met with the founder of Silicon Graphics, Jim Clark, in early 1993, which is what began an initiative between the two companies codenamed Project Reality, officially announced in August of 1993, and with the goal of making its way to arcades in 1994, followed by a home release in 1995. This initiative, whereby cutting-edge Silicon Graphics technology would be transformed for home consumer use, is what would eventually result in the creation of the Nintendo 64. The Nintendo 64, and by extension the Silicon Graphics internals of the console, would be designed to be the most advanced console of the time, with a 64-bit central processing unit, or CPU, allowing for previously unimaginable amounts of data to be processed at any point in time. This processing power, coupled with graphics hardware designed for displaying truly three-dimensional worlds, including advanced texture mapping, support for 640 by 480 pixel resolution visuals with up to 16.8 million colors, and expandable memory through the use of the Nintendo 64 expansion pack, created a gaming environment that was designed for the future, not the games that many players were familiar with. And I've got to say, from a personal standpoint... The first time I saw graphics demos running on N64 development hardware, I was completely blown away. Unlike other consoles where you could still make out individual pixels in the visuals with the N64, there was nary a pixel in sight, driven primarily by the fact that it employed a technique known as trilinear filtering, which was a way of smoothing out textures to create a more uniform surface. That being said, the Nintendo 64 also had limitations driven by the relatively small storage space provided by cartridge-based media, as opposed to the nearly 10 times more data available on CDs. What that meant was that textures, while able to employ advanced filtering techniques, were often smaller in size than those available for other systems, which translated into blurrier visuals for many games. Regardless, the Nintendo 64 was highly anticipated, and gamers the world over were anxiously awaiting its release. Now, it should go without saying, but all the computing power in the world means nothing if you don't have the software to actually put that hardware to work. And here, Nintendo took great efforts to ensure that they would have a dynamic team of developers ready to deliver world-class gaming experiences to the masses. 
This group of initial developers, codenamed the Dream Team, consisted of a bunch of prolific industry veterans, including Acclaim, Midway, Ocean, Spectrum Holobyte, and, perhaps most importantly, Rare Limited. Now, we have discussed Rare before, primarily during our episode in Donkey Kong Country, but just to provide a bit of a refresher. Rare was one of Nintendo's most well-trusted development partners, with a number of quality titles released for both Nintendo's 8-bit and 16-bit consoles. Of those, Donkey Kong Country is perhaps the most significant, as it was the game that almost single-handedly kept the Super Nintendo relevant in the face of new-generation console competition, creating a graphically rich experience that nobody could actually believe was achievable on a 16-bit console. This was, of course, the result of clever graphics and programming tricks, where Rare used Silicon Graphics workstations to pre-render a number of high-quality three-dimensional images, and then converted those pre-rendered visuals into traditional sprites, which allowed the game to appear to be advanced, while in reality, it was really only using the same kind of sprite-based graphics that platforming titles had been using for years. That trickery, though was enough to make people do a double-take, and also helped Nintendo remain competitive while their Nintendo 64 console went through a series of delays before finally releasing to the market in June of 1996. Upon its release, the Nintendo 64 was very well received, both in terms of console capability as well as its launch titles, which were limited in this case to just two games in the United States, those being Pilotwing 64 and Super Mario 64. Of those two games, it probably goes without saying that Mario 64 was the more historically significant title, and that was primarily because it represented the latest, most technologically advanced platforming title the world had seen up to that point. Driven by Shigeru Miyamoto's vision of a three-dimensional Mario game, originally conceived while he was working on Star Fox for the Super Nintendo console, Super Mario 64 would redefine the platformer genre, in much the same way that the original Super Mario Bros. laid the foundation and framework for nearly every two-dimensional platformer that would follow. Unlike Super Mario Bros., however, Super Mario 64 would include a fully realized three-dimensional world with an advanced camera system, texture-mapped polygonal character models as opposed to sprites, and a control scheme that leveraged the capabilities of the Nintendo 64 controller, which included, for the first time on a Nintendo console, an analog stick to facilitate movement in 3D scenes. Super Mario 64 was released to critical acclaim and universal praise across nearly the entire gaming community, so it stands to reason that other companies, and in particular other Nintendo-aligned developers, were going to attempt to capture the same lightning in a bottle for their own future releases. One of those companies, and one that was always on the forefront of technology and gameplay innovations, was none other than Rare Limited, the well-respected creators of Donkey Kong Country. Shortly after Super Mario 64 was released, Rare began brainstorming their own ideas for future three-dimensional platforming titles, all while they were working on other games, both for the Nintendo 64, like Killer Instinct Gold and GoldenEye 007, as well as the Super Nintendo, like the sequels to Donkey Kong Country. There were a number of ideas being thrown around for potential three-dimensional platformers, but one concept kept coming to the forefront that being a game starring a squirrel mascot named Conker, who would take part in an adventure that would effectively be a Disney-esque romp through cartoon-like forests, meadows, valleys, and fields, a sort of Nintendo 64 version of classic Disney films like Bambi, albeit with the player entirely in control. 
This initial concept, along with a sister title of sorts that would eventually become fellow three-dimensional platformer Banjo-Kazooie, would be unveiled to the gaming public at the 1997 Electronics Entertainment Expo, where the public and gaming press would see, for the first time, Conker's Quest. Upon seeing the title, press would be quick to praise the game's graphics and general similarity to Super Mario 64, which was still the prevailing standard in three-dimensional platforming titles. Though many thought that the game wasn't quite different enough from other efforts, and was, in many instances, not quite as well received as Rare's other platformer that debuted during the same E3, Banjo-Kazooie. The other issue, beyond it being derivative of other titles, was that the game was apparently a bit too cute. As in, really cute. As in, one game critic referred to the game as disturbingly cute, with the general critique being that the title might garner some attention from younger gamers, but there would be little chance that older players would even take notice of the title. For what it's worth, Rare would take some of those criticisms to heart as it went off to refine the title over the next year, which led to the creation of a companion female squirrel character who would have her own puzzle-driven levels, while Conker would have more action-oriented stages. Additionally, beyond the single-player content, a new multiplayer mode would be added to the title, including the ability for up to four players to compete on a single console, leveraging the full power of the Nintendo 64 along with its four built-in controller ports. Additional refinements to the game included an even deeper focus on graphics, as Conquer was updated to use the Nintendo 64's high-resolution mode, coupled with an increase in texture quality, all of which served to make the game one of the most visually impressive of the Nintendo 64's upcoming lineup. All of these changes came with a new game title. Conquer's Quest would now be known as 12 Tales Conquer 64. This new version of the game would make its way to E3 in 1998, and would, once again, be generally well-received by the press, with particular praise related to the graphics quality, multiplayer gameplay modes, characters, and progression system, whereby Conker would learn new moves as he progressed through the game. Despite those praiseworthy elements, there was still a fair amount of criticism about the overall style of the game with several reporters saying that the game was still too similar to other platformers like Super Mario 64 and Banjo-Kazooie, which was scheduled to release a month later. Some even called the environments and levels unimaginative, while others still complained that the game was being created to appeal almost exclusively to younger players. One person even referred to the music as infuriatingly happy, which, by the way, I just have to say, I find some of these comments pretty funny. Infuriatingly happy? disturbingly cute? This was either the most saccharine game ever, or some reporters in the late 90s were just really grumpy. Regardless of which of those statements were true, the fact is that Rare took that feedback as a sign that the game was not up to their typically high standards, which caused a lot of infighting within the company. Some individuals claimed that there was a lot of content, but it just wasn't coming together into something meaningful. Other individuals explained that the game had a ton of fun pieces, but those individual pieces weren't able to be integrated into a quality-focused experience. This internal strife, coupled with the general state of the market and the oversaturation of the 3D platformer genre, resulted in Rare quietly shifting their attention to other efforts. Now, for what it's worth, Rare never officially canceled or shelved the project, but for a good chunk of time, there was little, if any, update on the title, so much so that many publications of the time believed Conquer had become vaporware. There was a promising concept there, but nothing that the gaming press believed Rare would finally execute on. 
Though it does warrant mentioning that despite Conker's N64 adventure hitting a bunch of issues, Rare did in fact release a Conker game around this time. Entitled Conker's Pocket Tales, it would be Rare's first game released for the Game Boy Color, and was okay by all accounts. I've never personally played it, but critical response at the time of its release was decidedly mixed. From what I can tell, it was pretty much your standard Game Boy Color family-oriented collectathon, with a semi-overhead view that saw Conker scouring a fantasy land to find a bunch of birthday presents and rescue his kidnapped girlfriend from a bad guy named Evil Acorn. I'm not going to judge the title based on that description alone, but suffice it to say, all of the press feedback about Conker being disturbingly cute isn't exactly disproven by his Game Boy Color outing. Anyway, as time went on, it became obvious that in order for Conquer to ever see the light of day, a dramatic shift would be needed. And here, one of the artists on the original iteration of the game, Chris Seaver, would end up being the savior of the entire title. Seaver had joined Rare back in 1994 as an artist, with his first assignment being background design and character modeling for the arcade fighting title Killer Instinct, though it wouldn't take long before the team discovered that Seaver had an additional talent. He was, interestingly, a pretty good voice actor, and over the years he would end up providing a number of voices for various Rare games, including Killer Instinct, Diddy Kong Racing, Banjo-Kazooie, and Perfect Dark. In fact, because Conker had been worked on for years by the time the team stopped focusing on its development, Seaver had actually provided the voice for Conker in Diddy Kong Racing, so he definitely had some familiarity with the character. So, one day, Seaver went to Rare co-founders Tim and Chris Stamper with an idea he had come up with while working on the latest iteration of the game. What if, instead of creating a traditional cutesy 3D platformer, the game was a more mature kind of experience, where rather than a hero saving the day, the hero in this instance would attempt to help others, but would instead cause more problems in the process. In short, what if Conquer, rather than saving the land, would instead be having a really bad day? Seaver envisioned a game filled with violence, adult humor, foul language, and other envelope-pushing concepts, and the Stamper brothers thought the concept was brilliant. It was that idea that would transform the Disney-esque Conker into the foul-mouthed miscreant that would eventually star in Conker's Bad Fur Day. The Stampers immediately promoted Seaver to the lead of the project, and basically told him to get to work. Seaver's first order of business upon taking over leadership was to retool an early quest entitled Wasps and the Queen Bee, originally conceptualized by Tim Stamper as a sequence where a bunch of wasps steal a beehive. Upon hearing that concept, Seaver immediately began thinking about how to provide some sort of reason or rationale behind why the quest even existed, and it was here that Seaver would develop the framework that would be used for almost every single quest in the game. Rather than following a traditional fetch-quest kind of mentality, as was prevalent in many platformers of the time, Seaver envisioned a structure whereby each mission or quest would begin with some sort of introductory explanation or sequence, followed by the interactive section of the quest, where you as the player would be required to do something, and finally finishing with some sort of punchline that would give you a payoff to the overall experience. In the case of the Wasps and the Queen Bee, the twist was that the Beehive actually had a bunch of heavy artillery machine guns inside it, and when Conker retrieved the hive with wasps in tow, the bee would enter the hive, man the guns, and blow the wasps to smithereens. Literally, with wasp parts exploding on the screen in a form of cartoon violence that was shocking in comparison to Conker's original design. 
Upon seeing the new sequence, the Stampers agreed that this is what the game needed to be, and basically told Chris Eber to do more of that, but for the entire game. So, that's exactly what he and the team did, incorporating a bunch of mature humor, violence, and raunchiness throughout the experience, with almost nothing off-limits. With this reinvigoration of the title, Rare formally announced to the public that Conquer was back, and in the year 2000, the game was officially rechristened as Conquer's Bad Fur Day, with the official title matching the codename that the project had been known as after Seaver took over the project. Now that the game was back on track, the team was able to focus on creating something truly memorable, and here there was a surprising amount of freedom for what was effectively a AAA production, at least in terms of early aught standards. Rather than having a fully fleshed out design document with a detailed line-by-line script, the team instead worked together and collaboratively to basically design the game as they went, with each team member taking cues from each other to create the best possible scenarios based on everyone's collective ideas. While early on most of that focus was on the gameplay, attention quickly shifted into infusing the title with as much comedy as possible, and oftentimes gameplay decisions were made simply because of the comedic requirements of the title. As an example, originally, Conquer was supposed to attack enemies with a baseball bat, but that attack was changed to a frying pan simply because it let the team utilize a funnier sound effect whenever the weapon would come into contact with a bad guy. The team also decided that Conquer would often break the fourth wall, turning his attention to the player and, at times, having a conversation with them or expressing the ridiculousness of a given situation. This fourth wall breaking was originally much more prevalent than it ended up being in the final game, and in fact, one original ending was entirely based on a meta joke where the game seemingly stops working after you beat the final boss. That particular ending never made it into the final game, but I do find the concept interesting nonetheless. Similar attention was paid to the game's levels and dialogue, which rather than following traditional platform staples, would instead be based almost entirely on popular film parodies. And by the way, when I say almost entirely, I truly mean it, because there were so many film and television references peppered throughout the game that I truly lost count. We had The Matrix, Aliens, Terminator, Saving Private Ryan, A Clockwork Orange, Star Wars, Dracula, just to name a few. Beyond those parodies, the game itself would be designed differently than many platformers, in that Conker's moveset would be based on the situation he was currently in, rather than having all skills available at all times, or building an overall moveset as you play the game. For Conquer, the development team decided that they wanted an insane number of moves to be available in the game, but they also knew that including everything they wanted wouldn't be feasible given the desire to keep the overall control scheme simple. The compromise was to embed context-sensitive gamepads throughout the game world, where the player could simply hit the B button on their controller and they would gain a completely unique skill set for that section of the game. In one section, you might whip out a slingshot to shoot enemies from range, while in another section, you might flip through the air with an automatic weapon firing at anything that moved. The context-sensitive areas added a ton of variety to the game, and was yet another way the game was trying to separate itself from the traditional platformer experience of the time. As the team continued to work on the game, they decided that they not only wanted to create a unique gameplay experience, but they also wanted to create something that rivaled every other Nintendo 64 game ever released from both a graphical and auditory perspective. Turning our attention to graphics, the team decided to keep using the N64's high-resolution mode, as they had done during the previous iterations of the title. 
Beyond that, though, they enhanced the quality and variety of the animations beyond most other N64 games of the time, with even minor situations and characters receiving unique animated models. Conker himself would have 2,000 animations devoted just to his moveset, not to mention all of the other animations that made up the game's world. Part of that animation set was a fully realized facial animation routine, whereby Conker and other characters not only had lip syncing, but would also be able to display emotion depending on the scene. This was light years beyond the normally one-look model that most platformers used for their protagonists, not to mention the other characters in a game's world. The graphical enhancements didn't end there, though, as Conker would also be one of the first games to use advanced lighting techniques on the N64, with the game utilizing four unique light sources to illuminate its world. Now, I know that probably sounds like a ridiculously quaint claim to fame, but the fact is, even today, many games use lighting tricks to keep the total number of light sources in any given scene small. Sure, you have companies like NVIDIA providing technology to developers that effectively allow them to use an unlimited number of light sources in their scenes, which, when combined with ray tracing, serves to create graphics that border on ultra-realism. But the fact is... Having four fully programmable light sources on the N64, a system with the rough capabilities of an early Pentium computer, was nothing short of magic, and it took the Rare team months of deciphering N64 development and hardware documentation to figure out how to make this work. There's a reason why other games hadn't done this before, but as Rare had always done, they wanted to push the envelope and unlock the true power of the hardware available to them. Similar attention was paid to the auditory environment, where other rare programmers spent time developing support for MP3 playback, audio reverb, and even Dolby ProLogic surround sound, making it one of less than 20 games on the N64 to have surround sound built in. The MP3 playback support is actually particularly interesting, at least if you're interested in old-school technology, which you guys know I am, so let's take a quick detour to talk about it. MP3 as a technology is something that today doesn't even warrant a mention. The fact that we use compressed music files is simply the way music, particularly streaming, works nowadays. Whether that music is truly in the MP3 format or some other compressed file type, the simple truth is that compressed music files are a way of life today, and almost any electronic device with a pulse can decompress and play music files without issue. Back in 1996, when the Nintendo 64 was released, though, we had much less powerful hardware, and the Nintendo 64 in particular was based on a processor that ran at 93.75 MHz, which, like I mentioned a little bit ago, was good enough to perform roughly similar to entry-level Pentium computer systems. The thing is, in order for computers to decompress MP3 files without any sort of playback issues, or simply hanging your machine entirely, you'd need around a 90 MHz Pentium. And even then, good luck if you were trying to multitask while playing one of those files. So, how the heck did Rare get MP3s to play, real-time, on a Nintendo 64 while still playing the rest of the game, which, like we talked about, was more graphically intense than many other N64 games of the time? The answer, it turns out, was to create a custom MP3 playback routine that would use the N64's 3D graphics chip to decompress the music files, which was an interesting and ultimately ingenious solution. Typically speaking, graphics chips are really good at math, and specifically, the math performed to calculate how to move pixels most efficiently on a screen. 
Rare figured out a way to use that mathematical prowess to decompress the MP3 files, all without impacting the game's performance at all. And figuring out this MP3 decompression and playback process was incredibly important for the title, as Rare decided that they wanted to not only use high-quality pre-recorded audio for the majority of Conqueror's soundtrack, but beyond that, they wanted the game to be fully voice-acted, which frankly was just not done on the Nintendo 64. Sure, CD-based systems could get away with full CD audio music and voice dialogue, but the cartridge-based N64 system? That just wasn't a thing, and given the storage limitations of the cartridge, there was really only one way to make it work, which was to use MP3 audio compression. In this way, necessity really was the mother of invention, to quote a popular saying. Speaking of audio, the music for the game would be composed by a man named Robin Beanland, who had joined Rare back in the mid-90s. Over the years, he had contributed to a number of Rare games, including Donkey Kong Country, Killer Instinct, GoldenEye 007, Perfect Dark, the previously mentioned Conker's Pocket Tales, and Donkey Kong 64. For Conker's Bad Fur Day, Beanland would be able to compose high-quality pre-recorded audio for a good portion of the game's soundtrack, while also using MIDI, or Musical Instrument Digital Interface, files to provide for a more dynamic soundtrack that fluctuated and shifted based on the action occurring on the screen. In this way, he was able to take advantage of the MP3 compression that Rare had pioneered on the Nintendo 64 hardware, while also using the native synthesis capabilities of the console to create something truly unique. Though, I must say, Beamland's crowning achievement has got to be the song Slow Prano, which involves a gigantic pile of excrement singing an operatic solo while Conker attempts to pelt him with rolls of toilet paper. I know it sounds sophomoric, and I would never claim it was highbrow humor, but if you haven't already, simply listen to the song. It's actually way better than it has any right being, given the subject matter, and I will freely admit that back when the game was first released, I liked it so much that I ended up teaching myself how to play the song on the piano. It is that good. Beyond the soundtrack, like we were talking about earlier, the game would contain full voice acting, and here, Chris Seaver would once again lend his vocal talent to the game as he ended up voicing nearly every single male character, aside from the great Mighty Pooh, who was voiced by a software engineer on the team named Chris Marlowe, who apparently had some opera singing experience. <laughs> Go figure. Female voices would similarly be voiced by a single person, an animator in the team named Louise Ridgway, who admitted that she didn't have any idea how to do an American accent, so she simply added the word like every so often to her lines. While not every American woman speaks like a valley girl, I have to at least give Ridgeway credit for trying. Eventually, all of the various pieces of the game, from the graphics to the sound, to the voice acting, to the gameplay, would come together, and Conquer would be ready for release. All of that content, by the way, was absolutely massive for a Nintendo 64 game, and Conquer would end up being one of the few titles to ship on a 64 megabyte cartridge, which would also contribute to a higher than normal price for the game than other similar titles. All told, the majority of that space, just about 75% of that total, was taken up solely by the audio, which is just a little bit crazy to think about. So, the game is shipping on a 64 megabyte cartridge. It's a higher price than a typical Nintendo 64 game. It's got a ton of raunchy and mature content, and was in fact only the second Nintendo distributed title to receive an M, or mature rating, by the American Entertainment Software Ratings Board, or ESRB. The question arose, what is the best way to market the title? 
And here, the team decided that, because it was a mature-rated game, they really should be appealing to a target demographic that they believed would enjoy a game with that kind of content, which translated into a focus on marketing the title almost exclusively to college males. Nintendo and Rare contracted the advertising campaign out to a company called Starcom, and it didn't take long for them to get to work, as they began buying up ad space in bars, on late-night television, in adult magazines like Playboy, and other venues that would have made 1994 Nintendo of America blush. Some of those ads, like a video where a squirrel and a mostly naked woman are in bed with each other, kind of defy logic, while other marketing pushes, like having a Playboy Playmate host a series of Conquer multiplayer tournaments in colleges across the U.S., made slightly more sense. Despite those interesting marketing choices, the advertising campaign was very well regarded, and Starcom won advertising industry awards for their work on the Conquer campaign. It's kind of crazy how video games were marketed back in the 90s and early 2000s. Now, you might think that with such a huge advertising campaign, the game would sell well upon its release in March of 2001. But in fact, you would be entirely mistaken, as the game would only sell a little over 50,000 copies in its first month on the market, which is a far cry from Rare's last big platformer release, Banjo-Kazooie, which sold more than double that number of copies in just its first week. That lack of sales was likely driven by a number of factors, including its mature rating limiting the game's potential audience, the higher cost for the game in comparison to other titles, and the fact that the Nintendo 64 was nearing the end of its lifespan, with gamers beginning to look forward towards newer consoles, like the recently released Sony PlayStation 2 and the soon-to-be-released Nintendo GameCube and Microsoft Xbox. Regardless of its commercial performance, though, Conker's Bad Fur Day would be critically praised by nearly everyone who played it, with many praising the game's graphics as the best ever seen on the Nintendo 64, while others loved the game's humor, gameplay, audio, and pretty much everything else to do with the title. Numerous publications would award Conker Game of the Month honors. It would be nominated for a number of Game of the Year awards, and in later years, it would be proclaimed by many to be one of the best games of all time. With such a strong critical response, Rare almost immediately got to work on a sequel, using the working title Conquer's Other Bad Day, which would have pretty much started off right after Conquer's Bad Fur Day ended. Unfortunately, that sequel would never see the light of day, as Rare would be purchased by Microsoft in 2002, and under that new ownership, the title would be cancelled. That wouldn't be the end of Conquer, though, as several years later, Conquer's Bad Fur Day would be remade for the Xbox 360 and released as Conquer Live and Reloaded in 2005. Many aspects of the game would be improved upon, including the quality of the graphics, sound, animation, and controls, though interestingly, various sections of the game would be censored for the remake. I find it absolutely bonkers that a Nintendo game would eventually be censored by Microsoft, but that was the world we were living in at the turn of the millennium. That original uncensored version, by the way, would eventually be re-released on the Xbox One in 2015 as part of the Rare Replay Collection, though that, to the best of my knowledge, is the last anyone has heard of that foul-mouthed red squirrel. Conquer's Bad Fur Day represents a unique moment in gaming history, where a team of well-regarded developers decided to throw caution to the wind to create a mature, raunchy Nintendo title the likes of which had never been seen before. It was one of those situations where a group of talented individuals overcame adversity and negative perceptions to make something that would be heralded and recognized as truly special. 
While it's uncertain whether Conker will ever return to star in a new adventure, his original outing on the Nintendo 64 is still one that countless gamers around the world hold in high esteem. And I'd wager a guess that regardless of whether you love or hate the game, Conker's Bad Fur Day as an unexpected, unique experience in early 2000s gaming will likely be remembered forever. going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Conqueror's Bad Fur Day today versus when it was released a little over 20 years ago back in 2001. So if you've ever played a 3D platformer, you pretty much know what to expect from Conquer, at least from a foundational framework perspective. You control Conquer as you navigate a fully developed three-dimensional world, complete with multiple zones, enemies, quests, cutscenes, and hidden secrets. That said, there are a number of unique elements to Conker's Bad Fur Day that make it a fair amount different than most platformers. Sure, the bones of the game are inspired by titles like Super Mario 64, but the meat on those bones is something different entirely. For one, Conker has a fairly limited default moveset, which is definitely a bit of an oddity when compared to its peers. Take Mario 64 as an example. Mario has several different jumps, including backflips and running leaps, the ability to pound on the ground, climb up trees, punch enemies, and a number of other mechanics that serve to make the gameplay deep and meaningful. For Conquer, you can run, jump, hover in the air using your tail, swing your frying pan to hit enemies, and do a high jump, but that's pretty much it, at least in terms of Conquer's default moveset. But, like we talked about earlier, the way the development team decided to add move diversity into the game was by including context-sensitive pads throughout the game world, which effectively allows Conquer to learn a brand new moveset, at least for a period of time. From my perspective, this is an interesting way of adding new moves to the game without unnecessarily complicating the control scheme, though I have to say, not every one of these context-sensitive pad movesets were all that fun to use. A couple were standouts, like the flipping jumps in the Matrix section of the game, but most were just there, or more accurately, were just standard kinds of moves, like shooting a slingshot, while others were simply unnecessary, like certain sections where you turn into an anvil to pound the ground. I'm not sure why that couldn't have been simply a base move, similar to almost every other platformer that had come out over the prior five years. It felt like a bit of an overuse of the context-sensitive pads from my perspective. Those context-sensitive pads, by the way, were dispersed throughout the game world, and that world is incredibly diverse. You have fairly traditional game zones like forests, hilly plains, barns, and sewers, but then you also have incredibly unique zones, like any of the areas that parody popular films of the time, like Aliens and The Matrix, as well as areas that you will likely never find in a game again, 
like an area I can only describe as the pooplands, where not only do you walk around on mountains of crap while trying to avoid dung beetles, but you also have to roll poo balls around to make them bigger, like a big brown snowy wonderland, except made entirely out of waste. It probably bears mentioning that the degree of scatological humor included in the game is perhaps a bit excessive. I enjoy a good stool joke as much as any other 42-year-old man with a teenager's mental demeanor, but even I found myself saying, this might be just a bit too much feces. And by the way, for anyone who might be wondering, thesaurus.com lists approximately 60 different synonyms for good old number two, and I'm pretty sure I said nearly every single one of them over the last manure-laden couple of minutes. Beyond all of that BM buffoonery, the game also sets itself apart by being, generally speaking, a fairly humorous title, and pretty much every situation you encounter is included more for comedic impact than anything else, which gives the game a sense of zany adventure. Across Conqueror's Adventure, you'll encounter a huge variety of situations, including many movie parodies like we mentioned before. Those movie parodies are perhaps the clearest example of how the development team basically tried to create the craziest scenarios they could think of. And if you haven't played the game before, be prepared for some completely unexpected scenes, many of which do in fact have some degree of humor. Most of that comedy includes some sort of shock value, or at least shock value for what someone would expect out of a 3D platform game starring an anthropomorphic squirrel created for the Nintendo 64. I remember playing this game when it was first released, and all I kept thinking was, wait a second, this is the same Rare that created Donkey Kong Country? They made a game filled with swear words? And bleeped curses? On a Nintendo system? The answer to those questions, of course, is yes, yes they did. Anyway, beyond the humor, the general structure of the game is one of multiple zones, each of which has a quest or two that you need to complete in order to progress in the game. Most of those quests involve helping a non-player character of some sort, though oftentimes the end result of any given quest doesn't quite play out the way you would expect, at least based on common platformer tropes. Something else you'll likely notice when playing the game is that there are next to no collectibles to pick up, and there are no real levels to speak of. You're not going to be amassing a collection of stars, colored coins, bananas, golden currency, skulls, or any other sort of collectible that you might have seen in prior platform games. You are simply going to play the game. This both adds a degree of fresh air to the traditional platformer structure while also making the game a bit more linear than many other titles, or at least less ripe for exploring. Your mileage is going to vary based on what your own personal feelings are around collectathons versus more straightforward, story-driven gameplay. As you play through the game and complete quests, you'll encounter a number of bosses that you'll have to defeat, many of which have unique mechanics that need to be figured out before you can get past them. For me, this was a bit of a mixed bag. I can certainly appreciate a diverse set of mechanics for boss encounters, but at the same time, there are a lot of situations where the game doesn't really give you any strong indicator of what you need to do to exploit that mechanic. I'll give you an example. Relatively early on in the game, you'll encounter a battle with a pitchfork who wants to stab you repeatedly. You might think, okay, I need to jump on the pitchfork's quote-unquote head to damage him. You try that and nope, you take damage. So okay, maybe you just have to smack the guy with your frying pan. Nope, that doesn't work either. And then you think, 
Ah, okay. I see that as he's chasing me around, he does a lunge attack when he gets close to me. Maybe I need to get him lodged into a wooden wall or box, which will daze him and allow me to get some damage in. So you go off and try that. You see him lodge himself into the wall. You jump on him and then, nope, that just hurt me, not the enemy. Then, finally, you figure it out. You need to lure the pitchfork around the battlefield and make him attack a bunch of piles of hay that are hopping around. So, the way you beat this fight is actually to not fight. And by the way, attacking those piles of hay doesn't really give you any indicator that you're progressing in the fight, since they simply disappear when the pitchfork attacks them. At least for me, I kept wondering if I was doing something wrong the whole time, until the final piece of hay was skewered and the fight finally ended. This kind of boss fight design is fairly indicative of the rest of the bosses in the game, where you're placed into a situation where you're not really sure what you need to do, and you eventually figure out the mechanics through trial and error. Now, I'm all for a game that doesn't tell you explicitly what you have to do, but from my perspective, some of the mechanics could have been given a little bit more of a clue as to what's important and what's not. The good news is most of the time you have a little bit of wiggle room to figure things out because you do have a life bar of sorts, represented by six pieces of chocolate like you might see in a Hershey chocolate bar. As you get hit, your life will deplete, but most levels have a significant number of chocolate pieces to replenish any missing health, and those chocolate pieces regenerate quickly, so you're never in too much trouble. There are also squirrel tails sprinkled throughout various zones that, if picked up, will give you an extra life. Those also respawn upon exiting and re-entering an area, so the ability to stock up on extra lives is definitely there for anyone who wants to farm them. The main goal of the game is to rescue your girlfriend, and for the most part, despite the linearity of the gameplay, the actual way you tackle the individual zones in the game does provide a degree of non-linearity, in that there are a couple of sections where you can choose to explore one area versus another. Eventually, though, you will face the reality that all of your exploring will be gated by what feels like an arbitrary mechanic, and that is the amount of money you've collected. As you play through the game and accomplish various goals, like beating a boss or discovering a secret area, you'll occasionally encounter wads of cash hopping around on the ground. This cash is the main progression mechanic in the game, and is pretty much the closest thing resembling a collectible that Conqueror's Bad Fur Day has. Here's the thing, though. Like many of the boss fights you'll encounter, the game is very unclear about how important money actually is. You'll encounter a talking barrel early in your playthrough, at least if you explore a certain area, who will tell you that you need to give him a certain amount of money to get him to move out of the way. How much money, you might ask? Well, you're never actually told how much. So you go exploring, simply knowing that you need some quantity of cash to pay the barrel. It turns out, you'll need to collect almost every wide of cash in the game in order to pay that barrel off, which includes not just playing the game normally and progressing through boss fights, but also requires a good amount of exploration to find hidden cash that might be off the beaten path. For what it's worth, the cash is never all that difficult to find, though there are certain sections where you'll see some cash with no way to reach it until much later in the game, which can be frustrating as you try to figure out a path that ultimately doesn't exist. Assuming you devote some time to the game, you will eventually progress far enough and collect enough cash to make your way to the final sequence of levels and bosses, which all culminates in a couple of twists that makes the game end on a bit of a more tragic note than what the rest of the game would have suggested would happen. 
It was definitely an interesting choice, and yet another way that the Conquer team subverted expectations for an otherwise colorful 3D platform title. Before we go on, I should note that one of the big selling points of the game was also its multiplayer mode, and I will freely admit that I did not play any multiplayer in preparation for this podcast episode. So, my feedback here is solely related to the single-player experience. Before we move on to start talking about some of the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box for these games. I find it incredibly interesting to see how different companies marketed their titles. Now, around when Conquer came out, we did have a bit of the internet. We had the ability to get a little bit more information than what we would have had for some other earlier titles that we've looked at. But regardless, I do enjoy looking at the back of the box because it's still weighed into the overall buying decision. Even though we had much more information around the early 2000s than what we did before, It still was part of the buying decision as you were standing there in the store trying to figure out what to spend your hard-earned money on. So, for Conker's Bad Fur Day for the Nintendo 64, the back of the box says, The guys at Rare have been very, very naughty. The day after his 21st birthday bash, Conker's sporting the worst hangover ever, and he just can't seem to find his way home. Prepare to stagger through randy, raunchy, raucous scenarios crammed full of bad manners, twisted humor, and graphic bodily functions. Unless you're a fan of violence, foul language, and racy innuendo, you'd best steer clear of this one. Warped characters. Meet slow-witted farm implements, a well-endowed sunflower, and a mysterious beast known only as the Great Mighty Pooh. Bizarre Behaviors. Transform into a vampire's guano-dropping lackey, battle a caveman whose bone is worse than his bite, and storm the beach in an amphibious assault on an army of sinister stuffed bears. Frenetic multiplayer modes. Team up with friends or go it alone in seven different multiplayer games or five different free-for-all arenas. And then there are some screenshots on the back of the box. Most of them show single-player gameplay. There is one that shows a four-player split-screen kind of mode. And I've got to say, the box makes it sound unique in comparison to most other Nintendo 64 platformers. And it definitely would have piqued my interest. And in fact, it did pique my interest because I bought it near day one when it first came out back in the early 2000s. I'll let you know what I think of it today in just a minute, but I will say back then, I absolutely loved the game. So let's move on and start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. The simple fact is that the graphics in Conquer are really good, much better than what you'd expect the Nintendo 64 is capable of. When I was playing through the game for this episode, I noticed a number of textures that were strangely high resolution. And look, I know that calling something strangely high resolution is kind of an odd thing to say, but that's the only way to describe it. I have played a ton of Nintendo 64 and other titles released around this time, and while computer technology was capable of higher quality visuals, you just didn't get a ton of visual fidelity on home consoles. That was on the horizon, but it wasn't quite in place at the time Conquer was released, which makes actual legible text on a sign seem like a revolutionary thing. And for the time, it kinda was. Conquer is definitely one of the better-looking games on the Nintendo 64, and I believe those graphics hold up even today. 
I will say, though, that character models in some environments do suffer from early three-dimensional polygon restrictions, which means that you can see the corners of polygons when you look at various models. That kind of thing just comes with the territory when we talk about games around this time. The concept of being able to generate what appears to be a smooth curve just wasn't possible with the available technology. I don't think this detracts from the game, but it is something that you'll notice when playing. The texture quality? Outstanding. The 3D models? Eh, a little bit rougher, though still appropriate for an early 2000s game. Animations, by the way, were all well done as well, with motion feeling mostly fluid and most models moving smoothly through their environments. I don't know that I'd say anything here was particularly memorable, but there was nothing that I'd critique either. Overall, graphics were very high quality, and I have no complaints. Moving on to the sound and music, from my perspective, the music was outstanding, and I thought that nearly every track matched the action on the screen perfectly. There was an interesting mix of styles, driven primarily by the diversity of the environments and scenes in the game, and I'd honestly listened to this soundtrack outside of the game. I will admit, my wife gave me an odd look as I was walking around the pooplands, as the music in this area was a slow jazz kind of song that intermittently used fart sounds as percussion, but honestly, I have no regrets. Plus, and I hate to admit this, the fart sounds actually worked really well as percussion in the song. Another standout, like I mentioned earlier, is the song Sloprano, which is the operatic poop ballad sung by a gigantic turd called the Great Mighty Pooh. Say what you will about the subject matter, but the music itself is surprisingly good. Sound effects are all high quality as well, though nothing particularly noteworthy. What is noteworthy, though, is the fact that the game contains voice acting for every character, and there was a lot of critical praise when the game was originally released for actually including voice acting in a Nintendo 64 game. I will say that I applaud the technical achievement, and I think it's awesome that Rare was able to create a fully voiced game on a cartridge-based system. That said, the overall quality of the voices are obscured just a bit because of the compression needed to make them fit on the cartridge's limited storage. And even beyond that, I just wasn't particularly a fan of some of the voice work throughout the game. I thought Chris Seaver did a fine job overall, with the vampire's voice later in the game perhaps being my favorite, but some voices were almost unintelligible. It almost felt like Seaver didn't know what voice he wanted to give certain characters, so he just made his voice really raspy and sped up his delivery. While a lot of the voice acting in the game worked, those more speedy, raspy voices just didn't really feel like they belonged to me. Conker's voice also, from my perspective, is a bit hit or miss. This is purely a subjective thing, so I recognize that others may love how Conker sounds. For me, though, eh, it was decidedly mixed. I just wasn't a huge fan. Moving on to the narrative and story, as you might expect, you play as a squirrel named Conker, who ends up having a really bad day. You start by getting drunk and not being able to find your way home, which results in you stumbling around until you eventually find a scarecrow who sets you on a more constructive path. Then, as you begin helping various individuals throughout the game world, your girlfriend gets kidnapped by an evil panther king, which sets up your motivation for the rest of the game. Save the girl and defeat the dastardly monarch. Along the way, you encounter scenes both serious and silly, and help a number of the world's denizens, though ultimately, despite all of the help you're providing, things oftentimes end up going wrong. 
Can you succeed in the face of adversity and an ever-increasing cast of miscreants to save the day and restore peace to the land while saving your girlfriend in the process? Maybe, maybe not. Conquer actually had a ton more story in it than most, if not all, 3D platformers of the time, which was driven primarily by the fact that all cutscenes and interactions were actually scripted and voice acted. In most platforming titles, you may get quests of sorts from different characters, but they're usually very simple kinds of things, like grab this star from the top of this hill kinds of stuff. With Conquer, quests are much more diverse, and that leads to more story content overall. That said, I'm not entirely sure all of these cutscenes and quests truly support the main story arc of the title. Some of them feel so completely random that they basically exist as a microcosm of the rest of the game, which I have mixed feelings about. On one hand, it's all much more developed than other platform titles, which I like. On the other hand, the majority of the narrative isn't really a story thread, but is instead a number of short story snippets that all stand alone without really integrating into the broader plot. I know some of you are thinking, wait a second, you've said multiple times before that story and a platforming title isn't really needed, and that whenever you get a story there, it's a nice bonus, even if it's thin. And yes, you're right, that is what I've said, and I think it still applies here. It is a nice touch that Conquer has such a wide degree of narrative elements. But I also believe that if you're going to do a story in a game, you either keep it super thin and let your gameplay do the talking, or you make it super high quality and really lean into it. Conquer exists mostly in the middle, and that's why I have some critique about the overall narrative. It's still great that it exists, but it was more distracting than it probably should have been at certain points. I also need to point out, by the way, that not all of what the game considers humor really hits the mark for me, at least as a 42-year-old guy. I remember thinking it was hilarious when I played it as a 20-year-old, but it just doesn't hold up quite as well, at least for me, today. Moving on to the playability and controls, speaking of things that don't hold up quite so well, it, yeah, we gotta talk about playability and controls. And oh boy, do I have some opinions here. As we mentioned, the framework of the game's control scheme is relatively simple, with you having the ability to jump, walk and run, hover with your tail, and hit enemies using your frying pan. And taken alone, all of those controls work fine. You also have the context-sensitive pads that we talked about, where you learn a new moveset for a certain period of time, and for the most part, those controls all operate fine, at least in a vacuum. Sure, there are some inconsistencies here and there, and the control scheme isn't quite as tight as what you're likely used to with modern games, but overall, the controls work. I wouldn't call them great, because I did have some control-related frustration with the game, especially in one segment where you're forced to urinate on a bunch of rock people to nudge them through nearby doors powered only by the force of your urine stream. That segment, beyond having a solution that is absolutely ridiculous to utter out loud, was also probably the most egregious example of the game simply defying logic and not giving any sort of real hint to suggest what you should do to continue in the game. What person, in their right mind, would assume that the solution to any problem was to drink a bunch of beer to cause you to build up a urine supply, which you would then use to piss off, or rather piss on, a bunch of rock people in order to manipulate them through a doorway. That one was almost as bad as some old-school Sierra adventure game puzzles. Anyway, like I was saying, the controls are mostly fine, but there are some sequences that will cause you frustration, or at least they did for me. 
The bigger issue from my perspective is one enemy that I found responsible for the majority of my frustration, deaths, and anger that I experienced while playing the game. And I got to tell you guys about this one. Every time I encountered it, it was completely invincible. Every time I swung my frying pan, it passed through it like it didn't even exist. Every time I turned a corner, it was there staring at me. Actually, it was staring at me the entire game, sometimes from really strange places. It moved all over the place, oftentimes inconsistently, and can best be described as erratic, especially if you trapped it in an enclosed space where it would go absolutely crazy and usually just stare at a wall. Even in open spaces, it wasn't particularly predictable, though if you got close to any sort of obstacle or object, you'd often be able to distract it, and when you did, it would turn its attention and focus directly on that object, losing sight of you entirely. All told, this one enemy was my nemesis throughout my entire playthrough. That enemy, of course, is the game's camera. Oh my god, the camera. I have to preface this by saying that I recognize a good camera that effectively follows the player while showing the right amount of a surrounding environment, especially in three-dimensional worlds, is not necessarily an easy thing to create. Even today, there are modern games that have absolutely atrocious cameras, and that was even more common back when 3D worlds were still in their infancy. So I get it. Cameras in 3D games around this time were not what I would consider good. But Conker's camera? Holy cow, I can't tell you how much I absolutely despised it. It was infuriating. There were so many times where I was attempting to navigate a section of the game only for the camera to zoom in on some inanimate object, obscuring my view entirely to the point where I literally couldn't see my character at all. Moving my character didn't do anything because the zoom was so severe that my movements didn't trigger a camera shift, which meant there were portions of the game I was purely guessing on where I was going. It was so bad that it completely overshadowed the majority of the good parts of the game. Every time I'd start getting in a groove, the camera would rear its ugly head and cause a death or a missed jump or some other negative outcome that would ultimately end in frustration. And it wasn't like it was intermittent. Nearly every section of the game had at least a couple spots where the camera totally spaced out, which meant that it was almost impossible to string together a period of time where my gameplay wasn't impacted by the awfulness that was Conker's camera. This experience has legitimately left me curious, because I do not, in the least bit, remember the camera being an issue like this when I played the game 20 plus years ago. Maybe I was just more accepting of a camera like this because it was a fact of life back then? I don't know, but I was curious. So, I fired up Super Mario 64, because I remember being so floored by the quality of that title and its jump to 3D that it maintains a truly special place in my personal nostalgia vault. I was a little scared turning it on, to be honest, because I started to think, was I simply amazed because at the time it was so revolutionary? Being an earlier title than Conquer, I had some real concern. Well, I can happily report that Super Mario 64 remained as fun to play and control today as it did back when it first came out. Obviously, I didn't play the entire game just yet, despite my curiosity. I'm saving that playthrough for our eventual episode in Super Mario 64, because how can I not eventually cover that game? But what I can say is that Super Mario 64 felt just fine to play, no major control or camera issues. Sure, it wasn't perfect, at least by modern standards, but it wasn't distracting, and it didn't make me frustrated in the least. 
I think that's likely a function of the way Mario 64's environments were designed to be more open play spaces in comparison to Conquer, which had many more closed off areas that made it tricky for the camera to adequately focus on the action. Regardless, from my perspective, Mario 64 did 3D camera movement way better than Conquer did. With all that said, the fact is that a bad camera was pretty much expected with 3D games around this time. When looked at through a modern lens, though, it becomes decidedly harder to forgive. But you know what? I'm a pretty forgiving person, and I think I'd even be able to forgive Conker's camera if the entire game was simply fun to play. The unfortunate thing is, it just isn't. I've mentioned it a couple times before, but there are segments of the game that you'd have little to no way of knowing how to progress without either crawling into the game designer's brain or simply trying a bunch of stuff to see what, if anything, works. This, coupled with the camera, just added to the overall frustration. The unfortunate part is, the general platforming sections, meaning the sections that feel like a traditional platform title, are actually pretty darn fun. It's the other pieces where things fall apart a bit, which is a bit of a shame to say. I don't mean to suggest that every innovation rare through into Conquer was bad, because that's not true. But it almost feels like they tried to do more than the technology of the time would allow, and as a result, they created an absolutely awesome game when compared to other games from 2001. I'm just not sure it has the same impact when viewed from the perspective of someone playing it over 20 years later. So overall, how did it feel? Well, I gotta say, I'm torn here. There is definite goodness within the game, and some of it still feels 100% worthwhile to play today. There's the other side of the equation, though, where a good portion of the game simply hasn't aged all that well from my perspective. The early 2000s in general are a tough time for games, because there was such significant change happening, and that change sometimes manifested itself as different design elements that feel out of place today. Even more so than older games in some cases, because by the time we hit the 21st century, games were becoming more complex, and in that complexity lies the issue. Older titles may have been less approachable in general, but their gameplay was simple enough so that their age is partially masked by that simplicity. Games around the turn of the millennium were trying to figure out how to make their newfound complexity manageable, and in the process, they did not always hit the mark. Which is to say, Conquer was a mixed bag. I enjoyed parts of it, I didn't enjoy other parts of it. For me, it was an almost equal 50-50 split, and that is truly disheartening because I have fond memories of playing the title when I was younger. From today's perspective, though, it just doesn't feel like an even experience. So what is our verdict on Conker's Bad Fur Day? For me, this one is going to hurt a little bit. I love the concept behind Conker. A foul-mouthed squirrel exploring a raunchy, mature cartoon environment feels like just the kind of thing I'd find hilarious, and there is definitely some humor to be had here. The graphics and music, likewise, are awesome, and it truly represents the state of the art in Nintendo 64 platforming. But there's also a lot that detracts from the experience, with the camera being a near-constant hassle, and the non-standard platformer mechanics simply not being good enough to compensate. There's also the issue where the goals for some sections of the game are so poorly communicated that it makes the game frustrating to play. It's honestly just a little bit rough coming at it from the perspective of a gamer in modern times. For those reasons, 
I've got to rank Conker's Bad Fur Day as a mediocre mention. And I truly mean it. This one pains me greatly. This is one of those instances where my younger memory is somewhat shattered by my current experiences, and I do not like this feeling. But I can't give the game a pass simply because of my own nostalgia, or because it was a well-regarded game in its time. There is still goodness to be had, definitely, but Conquer is not going to be a smooth experience for everyone, and because of that, I can't possibly rank Conquer any higher than becoming our newest mediocre mention. That was our episode on Conker's Bad Fur Day. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. You can send me an email. My email address is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community surrounding this podcast. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We also have a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where to be. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on where in the world is Carmen Sandiego. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services. And if you would feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. This is not about trying to harvest a bunch of five-star reviews. Though if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to make sure that I can deliver the best possible podcast I can. The only way to do that is to get feedback from you, the listeners, to make sure that we are hitting the mark with what you all want to listen to. We get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. I want to make sure that I can continue to deliver and make this the best possible podcast it can be. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on where in the world is Carmen Sandiego. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. Great mighty Pooh, and I'm going to throw my shit at you. A huge supply of tish comes from my chocolate starfish. How about some scat, you little twat? Ha 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 ha.
some more caviar. Your butt. My butt. Your butt. That's right, my butt. Ugh. My butt. Ugh. My butt. <laughs> <laughs> Destroy my beautiful clagginess. Oh, I'm going. Oh, ah, no. Ah! <laughs> now that's what I call a bowel movement. <laughs> <laughs> 